Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. There are so many great things going on at Collective right now, so make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church to stay in the loop. Now let's get into Sunday's message. So I joked a few months ago when we got nominated that if we lost, we're shutting down Collective. So I need you to know that I'm very serious about that. So vote today, tomorrow, and Tuesday, or else this church will cease to exist in a few months. Hey, I hate losing. I don't want to lose again. We finished top three, which is such a huge honor. Uh, But if you ain't first, you're last. So uh, make sure to vote. You do it right now. I'm not going to say anything important over the next two minutes. Just take out your phone. Vote now. Do it every day. Um, We actually kind of got in trouble because I was like, hey, if you have multiple email addresses, use all of them. And the newspaper was like, stop doing that. So you choose what you do with that. Um, So most Sundays, I try to start my sermons with a story or by sharing some sort of exciting news with y'all. But I want to do something a little different today. Um, I I just want to check in. And I want to see how you guys are doing with everything that we've talked about over the past few weeks with this topic of winning the war in your mind. You guys feeling good about this? You like wrestling with it a lot? Are some of you just like, this is destroying my soul right now, right? That's okay, because this, this is a hard thing to wrestle with, right? Um, for many of us, this has been a lifelong journey of hearing these lies and battling these lies. Um, and while we know they're lies, uh, this is a time when we started, we're starting to do the work. Um, I know for me, I felt the heaviness in this room while preaching, and so I know this series is hitting a lot of people really hard. Um, And if any of you are like me, you just can't stop thinking about all this. Uh, Even though I'm preaching, I'm not sitting in the seats like you guys are taking notes. Um, This series is just consuming my brain right now. And I'm seeing this play out in my own life, but also in the lives of my friends who who aren't a part of this community. Just the other day, I got a text from a church planner that I coach, and he said this. He goes, do you ever feel like I have no idea what I'm doing or how this is working? And people think I know what I'm doing, but I actually have no clue. And at the end of last week, I was on the phone with a friend of mine from Kentucky, and he said, um, I feel like I'm just sitting here and thinking I'm not qualified for this job, and they put me in this role just so I could fail, right? And we know with our own selves and people around us, like, this is a war that we are constantly fighting, right? a battle that we are constantly in with our thoughts. Um, and because we know this is true, God created our minds and thoughts to be incredibly powerful, This is why we constantly have to battle those negative thoughts and those lies we believe. Because if we don't go to war with those thoughts, if we're just passive about it, if we let them be in control, what happens is those thoughts begin to take over. They become self-fulfilling prophecies in our life, in our marriage, our careers, and our faith. They stop us from experiencing the life that God has for us. And really what these lies do is they just wear us down. And what I know is true is that we know this. You don't need me to say this up on stage. We know this. But over the past few weeks, as we tried to get back on the right track, really, as we've tried to create new neural pathways in our brain that are based on what God says is true about us, my guess is you are a lot like me, and you've become even more aware of this battle that's happening every single day. This is why it's so important what Paul said in Romans 12, 2, when he said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We don't want to do what the world does. We don't want to think the way the world thinks. We want to live and think the way that God wants us and challenges us and pushes us and encourages us to live and think. 
And so as we continue in this series today, I want to expand on all this by talking um, about this really important thing called cognitive bias. A simple definition for cognitive bias is this. Uh, A cognitive bias is a mistake in reasoning based on personal experiences or preferences. It is a mistake in reasoning based on what we've experienced, what we've been through in our lives, and what we prefer. And I don't want to move on from this until it fully sinks in. I think the most important word in that is that it's a mistake. It's a flaw. It's a broken. It's a wrong way of thinking based on what has happened to us in our lives. Another way to think of cognitive bias is that it's a mental filter or a mental framework that we use to process what is going on, what is happening to us in our lives. But the problem with this filter is that it tends to lead us to the wrong way of thinking. Let me explain this with a few examples. If you grew up in a context where something really bad happened to you, a lot of times you have a mental framework or way of thinking, right, a filter through which you might see situations based on what happened to you. What ends up happening is you see it inaccurately. Maybe, unfortunately, you grew up around abusive men. Men in your life hurt you physically, emotionally, sexually. And so because you are hurt and abused by men, now a lot of times when you interact with men, Because of what you've been through, your filter tends to shape how you process your conversations and your experiences and your relationships, even though you know that not all men are hurtful or abusive. But because what has happened to you, you make a filter judgment and you inaccurately assume that the actions or words from some of the men in your life are just to hurt you. That's a cognitive bias. Here's another example. Maybe you had a friend that you thought was someone you could trust. And so you opened up to them about a struggle you were having. Maybe it was an addiction. Maybe uh, it was a friend from church and you were just talking about how you were wrestling with doubts in your faith. Maybe you're just trying to go to work on some of the wounds that you've had from your childhood. But instead of responding in a way that created mutual vulnerability or support or care, they responded by shutting you down. They pushed you away. They used your honesty and your vulnerability against you. And so now every time you get into a new friendship, you assume that that new friend is going to do what that old friend did because your cognitive bias says that all friendships will end the way that one did back in the day. For me, my therapist helped me realize that I have abandonment issues stemming from my childhood. And what that had done is it had created a cognitive bias or a filter that told me that every person in my life was going to bail on me eventually. And this led to me having trust issues. This led to my issues with authority. It led to me pushing people away and burning bridges when any relationship I had started to get a little bit complicated. Because I just assumed that they were going to leave eventually anyways, so I might as well pour gasoline on it to make it happen sooner rather than later so it would hurt less. The filters you have shape how you see your life, how you approach your relationships, how you pursue faith, how you handle struggles. But if you change the filter, it often changes how you feel. Right, think about Instagram, right? That picture you took that just wasn't good. A uh, little blurry, color's a bit off, it's oversaturated. What do you do? Right, you scroll right through until you find that Clarendon filter, which everybody uses. You pop it on there and it changes everything. It was the best day ever, right? And we've all done that before. When you change the filter, it changes the feel. And the same is true when it comes to our thoughts. A cognitive bias is a default filter. It's when our brain is pre-wired to think a certain way. It's pre-wired to interpret a certain situation based on something that's happened to us in the past, and the result is that we see it inaccurately today. 
This is why two different people can respond totally differently to the exact same situation. It's not the facts that are different, it's the filter. Here are just a few ways I've seen this play out at Collective. From time to time, I have to have conversations with people um, where they don't really love what I have to say. Um, Sometimes they're hoping for a different answer. Um, They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to hear uh, what God's truth, what scripture says about something. I've seen this in couples who are struggling in their marriages. I've seen this with people who want to take next steps, but you can tell they aren't really ready, and they're just kind of do it, doing it to fill some really unhealthy thing in their soul. Sometimes they're just taking next steps because they think they can earn favor with God. And I've seen this when it comes to saying no to people about ministries or opportunities that don't fit the mission and vision of collective. And over the past six years, I've learned that these types of conversations tend to play out in one of two ways. The first is that people get offended and defensive. They immediately start saying, you say you care about people, but you don't. I don't like this decision that you're making. My other church used to make it this other way, or my dad made it this other way. I'm like, I'm not your dad, so that's not my problem, right? It's the who do you think you are to say these things to me? But then I can sit down with another person, and I can have the exact same conversation, and they have a different filter. And they'll say, hey, I get it. I don't like this decision, but I know this is what's best for me. They'll say, I don't like what you're challenging me to do, but I know that this comes from a place of you wanting what's best for me. I appreciate the fact that we had the opportunity to sit down and have this conversation, so thank you. The same is true with church. Two people can walk into a church, and one can walk in convinced that all Christians are the worst. I hate this music. I hate this place. It's stupid. I never want to come back. And they can be sitting right next to a person who can have the exact same experience and say, these people are amazing. They're so loving and so kind. This worship sings to my soul. Maybe I'm here because God has something to say to me. It's not the facts that are different. It's the filter. You even see this in Scripture. In the book of Numbers, in the Old Testament of the Bible, Moses sends out 12 spies to explore a land they're about to enter. And these 12 spies saw the exact same thing, but their two reports were very different. Two spies came back and they said, the land is beautiful, it's amazing, it's perfect, it's a gift from God, we should go. But the other 10 came back and were negative, which honestly doesn't really surprise me that the majority of them were negative because it's just easier. It's easier to be negative and afraid and critical. But the other 10 came back and they said, this land is dangerous, it devours people, we need to stay exactly where we are and do not move. But it wasn't the facts that were different, it was the filter. One of the most famous stories in the Bible, David and Goliath. The whole Israelite army is afraid to fight Goliath. They're saying, he's too big, he's too strong, he's going to kill us. But David shows up and says, I've killed bears and lions before protecting my sheep, so how hard can this be? Besides, God is with me. It's not the facts that changed, it was the filter. And it's not just the filter that matters, it's also how we see things. It's how we frame things. You can be in the very same situation, how you frame something will determine how you see it. This is a tool that's used in therapy called reframing. Reframing is creating a different way of interpreting a situation or relationship by changing its meaning. I think the person in my life who is the best at this is my eight-year-old daughter, Elise. Uh, A few years ago, she was at daycare, and she was having some trouble focusing and listening to her teacher. And her teacher was trying to get her to clean up so they could go outside, uh, but it just wasn't happening. She was distracted. Uh, She was a little bit defiant. And so after a few attempts to get Elise to do what she needed to do, the teacher told her uh, she needed to take a break. 
And so the teacher put her in timeout, said, you need to sit at your desk for a few minutes to chill out while the other kids get to go outside and play. And Elise, being Elise, she didn't complain. She didn't throw a temper tantrum. She told the teacher, that's okay, my legs are tired. (laughs) And she said, now they can rest more so that I could go play more later. And really what she's doing as a kid is she's reframing it. Instead of dwelling on the punishment and getting in her own head, thinking, I can't do anything right. This teacher hates me. This is unfair. Now I'm embarrassed because I'm in timeout and the other kids aren't. She flipped the script. She reframed it. Now, I do want to clarify, though, what I'm not saying is that you need to fake it till you make it. That's not what this is. Fake it till you make it is projecting self-confidence in order to convince yourself, really to lie to yourself, saying you can attain a goal that you don't actually have the skills to achieve. This is not what we're talking about. This is choosing to see things differently, seeing your life through a new filter, seeing your life through a new frame. It's not lying to yourself, but working to see the good in the situations you are facing. Here's an example of what this looks like. Let's say you wake up tomorrow and you determine ahead of time that it's going to be a bad day, right? You wake up and you say, today is going to be the worst. I'm so busy, I can't get everything done. I can't stand the people I work with. I'm tired, I'm overwhelmed, I'm underappreciated, I hate my job, my husband's driving me crazy. Why do we have all these kids? That's most mornings if you have kids. You're like, how many do we have, why? If you wake up, your, wake up that day tomorrow and feel that way, you start repeating those things in your head, you know what's gonna happen? You're going to have a bad day. Right? You are choosing to have a bad day. But instead, if you wake up and reframe it, right? you wake up and you say, I've got a lot going on today, but I'm thankful that God is with me. Today's gonna be a hard day, but I'm thankful that God is for me. Right? I'm not sure I love my job, but I'm thankful I have a job that pays the bills. Even though some people drive me crazy at work, they're a good group of people, and I know they care about me. And so today is going to be a good day. Right? Hard things will happen, but we're going to grind it out. We're going to get it done. It's not the facts that change. It's how you see them. Because you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you frame it. You cannot control what happens to you, but you can control how you see what is going on in your life, how you respond to it, how you allow it to impact your future thoughts. Just like the last two weeks, Paul gives an incredible example of what this looks like in his own life. And for Paul, life was not what he had expected it to be. In fact, it was the complete opposite of what he wanted for his life. And the thing is, we know what that feels like. Some of you in this room, you dreamt of having a great marriage. You prepared for it, you prayed about it, you chose purity, you worked toward that goal with everything that you had. But then years later, you ended up where you never wanted to be, brokenhearted and divorced. Maybe for you, you went to college, you studied, you got a degree, you felt like you were prepared to do something very meaningful in your life. But now instead of having the job that you dreamt of, one that you love, you're in an unrelated field that feels way beneath your education. And you wonder, how in the world did I get here? Maybe it was that you got to a point in your life where you thought you would be married. Maybe you thought by now you'd be out of debt or making a difference or simply just happier. And you find yourself up waking up every single day thinking, I am not where I wanted to be. This was Paul. Paul had a heart for God and he dedicated his life to serving God. And he felt called to go to Rome to tell as many people as possible that Jesus died on a cross for our sins and resurrected from the dead a few days later, meaning we can trust everything he ever promised to us. And Paul knew that if he could get to Rome, because it was the most important city in the world at that time, 
the gospel, the good news of Jesus would spread like wildfire. And so that was his dream. That was the top of his bucket list. That was the thing he prayed every single day. His greatest desire, his calling, was to go to Rome to preach. And instead of being in Rome preaching, he was in Rome as a prisoner. He was locked up. He was arrested. He was awaiting possible execution. Everything Paul wanted for his life, he got the opposite. And Paul could have framed his situation in a few different ways. He could have framed it on the negative side. He could have said, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what happened to me sucks. Right? This is the worst. And as a result of this, I'm quitting the church. I'm blaming God. I'm walking away from my faith. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I expected. This isn't what I think I deserve. So I'm out. I'm done with all this Jesus stuff. He could have said that. Based on what he was going through, he could have said that. But what he did was he reframed it. Check out what Paul says in Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. It says this. He says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. And Paul says that being locked up is actually helping me tell other people how good Jesus is. But how is that possible? He's not preaching. He's not leading a church. He's in a jail cell. This is how verse 13 says this. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And so what Paul is saying is that even though it looks like I'm in bad shape, right, when, I ref- when I reframe it, it's clear to everyone else that I'm here because of Jesus. I am, I am a prisoner because I refuse to deny that I saw the resurrected Christ. And I'm so confident in that that I'm willing to be put in prison for this. Right, what's happening in Paul's life? And what, what it was was that he was actually literally chained to a Roman guard every single day. And for eight hours a day, a guard would be stuck right next to him. And then every eight hours, he'd get a new guard, right? Who's the real prisoner in that scenario? Paul was getting to preach to a captive audience, an audience of one, but a captive audience. And he got this new influential person every eight hours who had to sit there and listen to his eight-hour sermon about just how good Jesus is. And then he continues in verse 14. He says, and because of my imprisonment, Most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. And he's saying, guess what? This looks bad. This isn't what I wanted with my life, but my circumstances have led to other people knowing who Jesus is. Me being in chains means that other people have found faith. And for some reason, Paul didn't fully understand it, but for some reason, him being in chains allowed other people to know the good news of Jesus that he so desperately wanted to share. Paul knew the kingdom of God was growing because of his circumstances. It's not the facts that were different. It's how he frames it. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about how you can reframe your story and your relationships. Because what I know right now is that many of you have a battle going on in your mind. Your life is complicated. That is true for every single person in this room. We all have stuff that we're dealing with. Every single one of us, no one is exempt from that. There hasn't been a day that goes by without some stuff. It's stuff with your family, it's stuff with your kids, stuff with your neighbors, the people you work with. It's bad doctor stuff, it's bad behavior stuff, fighting with your spouse stuff, financial problems, fear stuff, bad news stuff. We're all sitting in this place where we have stuff in our lives that we are dealing with. But even with this stuff, what is true is that life is generally pretty decent. And often it's the stuff that ends up taking us out of what is good in our life. It's the stuff that we fix our thoughts on like we talked about last week. Instead of us focusing and framing our lives and our thoughts on what is true and right and good and lovely, we have this tendency to filter and frame everything through negativity. And so I'm going to give you three tools 
that will help us renew our minds so God can change our thinking, uh, which ultimately ends up changing our lives. So here's the first tool. We need to thank God for what he didn't, or what didn't happen. Instead of focusing on the negative, we thank God for what didn't happen. The reality is the thing that you are going through could always be worse. Maybe you miss a goal at work, you had a target so you could get a bonus or a promotion, you don't end up getting those things. And you feel devastated by that. It's reasonable to feel devastated by that, but what we're saying is you don't dwell on that. Instead, you thank God that in this ridiculous economy that we are in, that you have a job, that you get to go to work every day, that you get to take care of the needs that you have in your life, and suddenly you're reframing the situation. Rather than just focusing on what's wrong, you actually decide to see what's right. right? Maybe you get into a car accident, but instead of immediately going, oh my gosh, it's going to be expensive, or how are we gonna deal with not having a car for a few weeks, you stop and you say, thank God nobody got hurt. Thank God this wasn't worse. In the whole scheme of life, there is stuff that is a big deal. There is. But most of the time, the stuff is not as bad as our mind tells us it is. And so this is taking a step back and looking at the broader perspective instead of just focusing on the negative. We say, God, I thank you for what didn't happen. There's so many other good things in my life, and I'm not going to let this one hard thing take me out of being encouraged. And so we thank God for what didn't happen. The second tool is called pre-framing. Pre-framing is deciding how you'll frame a situation before you engage it, right? And why does this matter? It matters because our thoughts often uh, impact and shape what we experience, right? If you go into a scenario thinking, this is going to be horrible, I don't wanna be here, this is gonna be a complete waste of my time, you are pre-framing the situation, you're setting yourself up for failure, and the situation will be horrible, and a complete waste of time. And so many of us have ended up in bad experiences because we chose to have a bad experience as we sat in the car before we ever stepped in to where we were supposed to go. We decided on our way in to church that it was gonna be a bad day. We decided on our way into work, on our way into that social or that family situation. And what we do when we do that is we allow our cognitive bias, our bad past experiences to be the filter in which we pre-frame our current experiences and they suck because of this. Right? The problem is when we do that and we pre-frame with the negative, we never actually give those new things a chance. So instead of going to something saying, this is the worst, nobody's gonna care about me, this will fail, we pre-frame by saying, things are gonna go well today. Right? This thing isn't just like my past experience, I've got this. And when you pre-frame, when you step into those things before you even go into whatever you're experiencing, it changes how you perceive it. And here's the third thing. You look for God's goodness. You can look for God's goodness because I promise you, you will always find what you are looking for. If you look for the good, you can find the good. If you look for the bad, you will find the bad. If you want to find something that's wrong, every single day you can wake up and find something wrong. If you want to not like people, you can find a ton of reasons to not like people. If you want to be a victim, you can be a victim every single day. If you want to think something will fail, it will fail. But if you want to look for God, if you want to see faith, if you want to see grace and hope and peace and joy, you look for God's goodness. Pastor Craig Rochelle uh, put it like this, and I, and I love this analogy. He said, it's the difference between a vulture and a hummingbird. Every day the vulture flies around, and what does it find? dead stuff, dead things, roadkill, decay. But what does the hummingbird find? Every day the hummingbird finds sweet things. 
I promise you, you will always find what you are looking for. If you want to see what's wrong, what's bad, what's not working, you can live this really depressed and negative life and it will impact everything that you do. But if you want to look to where God is working, you can see that God is with us and going before us, that God is good, that God is powerful, that God answers prayers, that God changes lives. At first service today, uh, we celebrated Cello uh, as he got baptized. I'm gonna share some of his story with you. Um, growing up, Cello shared with us that his dad wasn't around. Um, his dad was an alcoholic, he peaced out when Cello was really young. Um, and his mom did her very best to raise him and his other siblings, but it was hard. And Cello ended up going down a path that he never imagined he would be on, and this included time in prison, it included time on the street, and uh, year, years, years long battle with addiction. And so the truth is, when you think about Cello's life and his childhood, the things that he didn't even ask for in his own life, he has every right to blame his childhood for where he ended up. Honestly, he has every right to blame his dad forever for what he did to him. He has every right to blame his parents. He can also step back and he can blame God. He can choose to do that. He could also stay stuck. But instead, we got to celebrate today as Cello chose grace and forgiveness and new life. This is what Cello shared with us. He said, I know I fall short, but I'm a work in progress. I wanna walk with Jesus and I know that God won't allow me to fail. I have a peace that I can't explain because I know God is going to take care of me. Jesus says to me, I've been there, don't worry, I've got it. He said, Jesus is my everything. My Lord and Savior, my protector, my brother, my God, my leader. And so we got to celebrate as Cello declared that. He declared that new life was found in Christ, that he didn't have to be worried about what happened to him in his past. He could step into his future walking side by side with God. Right? He reframed his life, but he was also pre-framing his future. He was looking at the goodness of God, and, he, and we got to celebrate that today through his baptism. Right? You can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you frame it. And any good therapist that you go to will talk about this idea of cognitive reframing. Reframing is empowering you to decide the meaning of an event. We decide how we view our lives and what has happened to us. But I'm actually gonna take this one step further because it's not really about how we see things. It's not really about how we decide to see our life and our pain and our trials and our growth. What this is about is letting God decide. It's letting scripture be the filter. It's framing things based on what God says is true about us. I shared in week one, of this series about the spring of 2021 um, being probably the, one of the lowest points in my life, mentally, emotionally, uh, spiritually, all of it. Uh, and I talked about how I did work through therapy, through Crucible, the retreat we talk about, um, through changing some things in my life. But there was also a set of verses in the Bible that helped me reframe my life during that brutally hard season two years ago. Uh, and I'm not even sure how I came across these verses, but they come from a book called Lamentations in the Bible. And it's this really striking passage for a lot of reasons. The biggest is that the author who wrote this book has every reason to be hopeless. Right? The first clue of what's going on in his life is that he wrote a book called Lamentations. Right? Lamenting is this passionate expression of grief and sorrow. It, it is pain. It is deep-seated pain. And this whole entire book is just a collection of those expressions. It's a book written by a guy named Jeremiah as he walked through the rubble of Jerusalem, his home city, after it had been taken captive by Babylon. 
He's literally stepping over dead bodies of his friends and his neighbors. And this book is about him crying out to God. And he's weeping with every step that he takes as he witnesses the destruction of the most important things in his life. But in the middle of his pain, this is what he says in Lamentations 3. He says, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. In the worst moment of his life, he says, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. And what he's doing is he's being intentional about his thoughts, even in the worst moments of his life. He's turning his heart and his hope to God, despite the fact that the circumstances around him are so difficult. He is centering on his, his thoughts on what he knows to be true about God, because in God, his filter is hope. It's mercy, it's love, it's grace, it's faithfulness. And I carry this verse with me because when I look back at that wretched season of my life, it doesn't actually look so bad. It really doesn't because it forced me to work on some of the dead things in my soul that I've been ignoring. Because of that hard season of my life, I'm healthier now. It taught me that I have a group of people in my life that love me and care for me unconditionally. And even at my worst, they didn't walk away from me. It gave me a chance to dismantle my work schedule that was too busy and too crowded and was setting me up for failure. But more than anything, it's because I realized that God's mercies, even in those hard moments, never ceased. That they were made new every single morning. And I woke up every day married to the woman that I love. I woke up every day reminded that I get to be a dad to two incredible girls. I woke up every day understanding that I have a job that I love that pushes me. But more importantly, I woke up every day understanding that even in those worst moments, that God is with me. And these verses help me reframe and filter and see just how good God has been in my life, even in the rubble. God promises that he is working in all things for good. God promises new mercies and hope and grace. And so it's time to reject the unhealthy thoughts, do away with the frames that tell you that you can't and you won't, that you're nothing, that you're a failure, that you're too lost or too broken, that you're all alone. And frame them on who Jesus is and what he says is true and what he has done in your life. Stop interpreting the goodness of God through your circumstances and start interpreting your circumstances through the goodness of God. Let's pray. God, it is so much easier to focus on the negative. Um, in fact, our, our brains are wired that way. God, oftentimes we tell ourselves when we focus on the negative, it's because we're protecting ourselves or because of survival. God, ultimately, it's because we don't want to get hurt. But when we focus on the negative, when we create that filter, when we allow that bias to seep into our thoughts and into our life, it impacts our marriages and our friendships. It impacts our faith. It impacts how we see ourselves, our ability to work and grow and heal. God, we stay stuck. God, really what happens is we sit in the rubble and we look around and we talk about how much pain there is and how much destruction there is, ignoring all the other good things that are happening in our life. And so, God, I, I pray as we continue to wrestle with this, God, as we, begin, as we continue to become more aware of the filters that we use, God, I pray that we take away the negative ones, and we bring in the filters, and we frame our life around your mercy, 
around your grace, around your hope and your peace and your love. Ultimately, God, all those wonderful things that you offer us, God, your goodness. God, I just pray that we can step into situations remembering that. God, that we can uh, look through our current situations remembering those things. God, really, that we can cry out every day, understanding that your mercies are made new every day. God, there are good things happening in our life. God, help us not focus on the negative. God, more than anything, uh, we are thankful that we don't have to drum up good things. God, that it's not about us and what we see and what we're doing and how we're living our life. God, you offer these things to us every single day. And we get to live in that place every single day. We don't have to power it on our own. It comes from you. So God, we're thankful for that. God, we're thankful for your unconditional love. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for your hope. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.